Good morning, everybody. Welcome into To The Point. We're all doing well on this beautiful Friday morning and heading into a weekend with lots to talk about, lots to talk about. Today on the program, we're going to discuss UFC 291, one of the biggest cards of the summer. Stacked, loaded card this weekend in Salt Lake City, Utah, one of my favorite cities in the world. That's well documented. Fighting at altitude, always a bit of a, a different experience. We'll talk about the main event, all the big fights, and some bouts announced yesterday that look very intriguing as well. We're going to talk some NFL today, some big contracts handed out, some news in Carolina, some news in Miami involving one of their top corners and Joe Burrow. We're going to get to some NHL news and notes uh, from yesterday, some signings. React to the Aho contract, amongst other things. But we're going to start today with Major League Baseball. Because the MLB trade deadline is on Tuesday, August 1st. We have a few days until we get there. But the big news prior to any big deals or anything happening is that Shohei Otani will not be traded by the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. They announced that yesterday, that he would be staying put. And it's hard to argue with that decision. The Angels currently sit three games back of the Toronto Blue Jays for the final wildcard spot in the American League. And they play in Toronto this coming weekend, oddly enough. But the Angels have won 11 of their last 13. They're playing well, and Mike Trout hasn't even returned from injury yet. So this team is on the come up. They're finding some success. And things are looking good in Anaheim. Now, is this the right decision? I said earlier it's hard to argue with that decision, although I can find an argument for anything. That's my nature. That's what I do. They're three games out, and it's July 28th. Happy birthday to my sister, by the way. 23 years old today. She, they are three games out, and with two months left, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I could be wrong. They're playing great baseball right now. I have no doubts about Shoei Otani. If you have doubts that Shoei Otani's performance is going to stink, then I think you need to have your brain checked because this guy's been the best player in baseball for the last three to four years. He's going to stay in the American League, which means he'll win his second MVP in three years, nominated the last three years when he gets nominated this year. This is a runaway train. There's nobody even close to him. Throw out your second place finisher, your salutatorian, throw them out there. Good for them. They can finish second place. It's Distant. It's like Usain Bolt racing against anybody else. He's looking back at the field laughing as he crosses the finish line. But I don't have faith that this team, even after on Wednesday night, they acquired starting pitcher Lucas Gilito, who's from LA, and Ronaldo Lopez, also a reliever. Even with those additions, I don't have complete faith that they are going to make the playoffs. Because even with those additions, 
And even with the best player in baseball, and who knows when Mike Trout comes back, if he does, I look at their situation and I still think the Blue Jays are a better team than the Angels. I still believe that the Houston Astros, who are in their division, are better than the Angels. The, the Texas Rangers are better than the Angels. The Tampa Bay Rays are better than the Angels. So I don't see a clear path where they will make the postseason. You play a lot of division games in September. That's more difficult for the Blue Jays. They have to play the Red Sox. They have to play the Rays. They have to play the Orioles. They have to play the Bronx Bombers. And they've stunk against them. Yes. But over the last two, three years, ever since the Blue Jays' resurgence, they've been one of the best teams in September in all of baseball. Last year, I think they, lost, they had the best record in September in all of baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays. The Angels, we don't know what they are in September because they're never relevant in September. They're out of it normally by mid-May. So credit to them for sticking around until July. And I understand this thought process of we need to try to win. We need to trade prospects for pieces like Giolito, like Ronaldo Lopez, because we don't want Otani to leave. Who would? You don't want the best player in the sport to leave your franchise to go to another team. And you need to do whatever you can to convince him to stay. Because what we're seeing in the world of pro sports, it's not really about the money anymore. I mean, it's always about the money, but the money's going to come regardless. We see the Jalen Brown contract, what, what Saudi Arabia offered to Kylian Mbappe. If it was only about money, you would have went to Saudi Arabia. If it, it, sometimes it's about situation. Sometimes it's just about circumstance. And oftentimes it's, I want to make a lot of money. But I want to have a chance to win, too. So to me, what the Angels are doing right now is they are directly competing with the Dodgers, not for the World Series, but saying, we will do as much as the Dodgers to help you win. We are going to trade for starting pitchers. We'll get another reliever. It's not to the deadline yet. Let's play good baseball this weekend. Maybe we'll do something more on Monday or Tuesday because we're all in. The Angels are all in to make the postseason this year. They will be all in come November to re-sign Shohei Otani when he hits the market. Just like the Dodgers will be, just like the Seattle Mariners will be, the select group of teams that will get a meeting with Shohei Otani. Could there be a surprise team that lurks in there? Sure, there always is. But they're more of a bargaining chip than they are a final destination. My logic on this is, do, do I believe my team can make the postseason? And you're three games out, and it's hard to say that you can't make the postseason. I get that. I understand that. 
but you also can look at it and say, we're so close, but yet we're not better than the three teams above us. Oh, and by the way, we're, behind, we're actually behind the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox currently. So are we better than those teams? And then the three teams above us in the wild card standings. And the thing is, there's expanded playoffs in baseball, but you make a wild card, it's the best two out of three. If you get swept like the Blue Jays did last year, you're out quick. It's basically a playing game, and you're gone. All that effort for nothing. Poof. See you later. If I was running the Angels franchise, I would have explored a trade for Shohei Otani further than they did. Because what I think is going to happen the last weekend of September is we're all going to be looking at the standings in the Angels, even with these additions, even with Otani winning the MVP for the second time in three years. Even when he hits 60 home runs, which he will. He's got 38 right now. After all of this, and Giolito might be really good. He makes his debut tonight at the Rogers Center on Apple TV. Those things can all happen. I still think they're going to miss. So you add, you keep Otani, and you don't know if he's going to stay. Because if it was only about money... He already would have signed the deal with the Angels. The Angels would have signed him 10 years, $600 million. You don't want to give him 10 years. Nobody should get 10-year contracts. But they're giving out. The Angels gave one to Albert Pujols. They gave one to Mike Trout. Both players above 30 years old when they got those contracts. Shohei Otani is 30 right now. They'll do it again because they've proven that they will do it. The Angels spend money. They're not a cheap organization. People can complain that Artie Moreno hasn't been a good owner and he hasn't hired very good baseball people to do the job. That's completely fair. It's unfair to say that he hasn't tried to win in his tenure there because he absolutely has. I just don't like keeping a piece when I don't believe my team's good enough. And I think part of the problem with, with baseball people, and I think it's difficult because I'm not in that position. But I like to think that I'm a pretty logical thinker. And if I was in that position, I would look at myself in the mirror and say, our team isn't good enough. Like our team isn't gonna isn't gonna win a World Series this year. We're not good enough to make the postseason this year. If you were playing in the American League Central, go for it. Go for it, go all in, trade for these pieces. You'll win the division because the twins and the guardians stink. But one of those teams are gonna make the playoffs because that's just how it works. That's the system. Until you change divisional format, making the playoffs, then that's going to happen. You're going to have an NL Central team, who isn't very good, and an American League Central team, who really isn't good, making the postseason. Are the Angels better than the Twins? Yeah. It's I, – I just don't – it's just – I don't 
I don't understand this. But good on the Angels. They're being competitive. They want to keep Shohei Otani. I can appreciate that. Just not the decision I would have made. I think there was better solutions for them. Other baseball news. Last night, the Mets have started their their sell. They traded their closer, David Robertson, to division rival the Marlins for two minor league prospects. He's got a sub-2 ERA. He's had a fantastic year. For for the for the Mets, the Marlins are half game out of the final wild card spot. So I I understand that for the Marlins, they want to try to make the playoffs. This is a low sum move. He doesn't make a whole lot of money. They don't want to add a whole lot to their payroll. The Mets want to shed some payroll. The biggest thing for the Mets over the next couple days will be Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. What do they do with them? Both of them have no trade clauses, so they can choose if they want to be traded. Verlander's had a 135 ERA in his last five starts. Scherzer turned 39 yesterday. He's pitching... He's pitching tonight against the Nats. Yes, he's 8-4. He's got a 4.20 ERA. He hasn't had a great season, like many players on the Mets. But I think there would be interest. Now you need to find that team. You need them to agree. They both have another year on their contracts after this one. So there's some complications there, certainly. But those are the two other big... Two other big things that can happen. Brandon Nimmo is not going to be traded from the from the New York Mets. He's he's got too much money left on that contract, and he's got seven years left on it. He's not going anywhere. They got Senga, that pitcher from Japan, really talented guy. He's not going to be traded. So, be interested to see what they do with the Mets, but David Robertson's the first piece that goes. I mentioned this last week. Carlos Santana, he's been traded the last three years at the trade deadline. He gets moved every year. Yesterday, he was traded from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the Milwaukee Brewers in division. So they had a veteran bat who is always in the postseason. Carlos Santana's got a lot of postseason at bats, was in the World Series with the formerly the Cleveland Indians back in 2016 against the Cubs. But he's been he's been a lot of places. Carlos Santana. 2010 started in Cleveland, played there till 2018, went to Philly, back to Cleveland, to Kansas City, to Seattle. Back to Kansas City, Pittsburgh, now he's in Milwaukee. But he gets to go in another postseason run. If you recall last year, Milwaukee was a seller. 
at the trade deadline. They traded Josh Hader to the San Diego Padres, which kind of imploded the team after that. They missed the playoffs entirely. They currently lead the National League Central. Christian Yelich is having a bounce-back season, playing some really good baseball. They may do more. Milwaukee, they want to have a chance. The Phillies still intrigue me. Do they do anything? Because they're a good club. The Marlins added a bullpen piece. The Cubs are only four games out of a final wildcard spot. Again, to me, they're in a similar position as the Angels. I don't think they're that good of a team. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I would be more encouraged in the National League just because I don't think any of those teams are that consistent. When you look at Cincinnati and Arizona and the Marlins, none of those teams have made the playoffs in recent years. They've all been rebuilds trying to find some consistency. And they have to a certain extent this year. But the Cubs only four out. They have pieces like Stroman, like Justin Steele, who could be moved at the trade deadline, like Cody Bellinger. August 1st deadline, it comes up quick as then you have two months. And teams like the Red Sox, teams like the Cubs, have to make decisions quicker than maybe they, they normally would. Back a few years ago when the MLB had the waiver trade deadline, you could make decisions later on. You could decide a month later whether you were a contender or not. The Houston Astros acquired Justin Verlander on August 31st, pitched a month of the regular season, then he wanted to pitch in the playoffs, and they won a World Series. They don't win a World Series in 2017 if they don't trade for Justin Verlander. That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that waiver trade deadline. The big move like a Max Scherzer, the Warrior God, or Justin Verlander, two-time World Series champion, gets moved. It's going to be by Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Atlantic. The Dodgers also made a move. They traded Noah Syndergaard, struggling Noah Syndergaard, to the Cleveland Guardians for shortstop Ahmed Rosario. This is good depth for the Dodgers. They acquired Kike Hernandez earlier in the week. They get Ahmed Rosario. He was playing good baseball for the Guardians. He's not a power hitter. But he can hit for average. He uh, He's a singles, doubles hitter. But they had a lot of depth. Jeff Passon pointed this out in a really good piece, that they had a lot of depth behind him. That he was He's a free agent after this season. So they were willing to part with him because they feel good about what's coming in, in their system. So he goes to the Dodgers and gets a chance to compete for a World Series. And although the Guardians are still in the mix in the American League Central, as I detail, because that division is terrible. But looking at big series this weekend that will have some importance. Yankees-Orioles. That's a big series to me. Orioles are in first place, but the Yankees are coming off a split with the Mets. They are two and a half back of the Blue Jays. If it doesn't go well this weekend, it very well could decide what they do with the trade deadline. Aaron Judge is expected to be activated tonight and to play his first game in over two months. I don't know if he'll be in the field or if he'll just be a DH for the rest of this season. 
but it sounds like if he's if it's not tonight, he will return this weekend at Camden Yards. So that's a big deal. Angels Blue Jays, of course, is big. Giolito against Kevin Gosman tonight on the hill. Brewers Braves. To me, the Brewers are they're eleven games over five hundred. They're battling with the Cincinnati Reds in their own division. But they're a decent team. How good do they want to be? Rays at the Astros. Big series. Rays have the worst record in baseball. They're 5-15 and in the month of July. How will that go? Mariners, Diamondbacks, both, you know, Seattle's still in a weird spot currently where they're far back in the wild card. They're four and a half back. They need to really get hot if they're going to get in. If they don't feel they're going to get in, what do they do? I don't see them trading. They're not going to trade Julio Rodriguez. He's the future of their team. Teoscar Hernandez, who they got from the Blue Jays. Could he be available? He'd be a bat I think teams would call on. Would they trade with a guy like Ty France? A first baseman that provides some some interesting things. Uh, J.P. Crawford. Their closer, Paul Sewell, is one of the best in baseball. So they have some pieces that teams would want. We got uh, Cincinnati's in Los Angeles this weekend. That's a good series. Red Sox, Giants, both teams still trying to figure out what they are. It's early for these teams to figure it out, but they're going to have to. They're going to have to decide, are we in or are we out? The Angels have made that decision. They are all in, and they are prepared to live with that circumstance. Where are the Cubs? Where are the Red Sox? Where are the Yankees? Where are the Mariners? Series this weekend could very much decide where these teams sit and where they where they're going. And if you want to add, who do you want to add and what are you willing to part with? Where are the Blue Jays? We think we know where they are, but Jeff Passan reported the other day that ownership is not sold on the team. They haven't done enough to prove that to prove that they're a team that's worthy of spending big on and that, that they could win a World Series. If that's the case, then what are they going to do? I mean, they have a $2 million, $200 million payroll this year. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not as if they're not spending money. They are. Could they improve the roster? Yes. Sure, any team can. But with a limited farm system, do you really want to do that? Interesting things ahead in Major League Baseball. Track it throughout the weekend. We'll talk about it next week, of course. Let's pivot to the National Hockey League. On Wednesday, the Carolina Hurricanes announced a long-term extension with birthday boy Sebastian Ajo. Eight years, $78 million, $9.75 million 
per year. This is a big extension for Carolina. Normally, they don't go this long with a player or give out this amount of money. He, he is worth $9.75 million. Sebastian Ajo is a very crafty player. He has been their most important forward oof, for some time now. You could argue the last four or five years. He's been there with Andrei Svechnikov. He's been more consistent. He's been more healthy. He's been more available. And he's been a solid two-way player. And I think he fits perfectly playing for Rod Brendamore. If I'm Carolina, I don't want to lose Sebastian Ajo. You lock him up a year early. That's the way business is done. It was done quietly. It was done Carolina style. That team's done a lot. They added Orloff. They brought in Michael Bunting. They re-signed both goaltenders. They just brought back Tony D'Angelo after he was bought out by the Philadelphia Flyers. After reaching the conference final, the Carolina Hurricanes want to make that next push and get ultimately to the Stanley Cup. Keeping Sebastian Ajo keeps you competitive. I have no problem with this contract. I don't have a problem with the number. I've made it clear many times. I don't want to sign a. I don't think you should be signing players for eight years. And if I'm a player, I'm not signing an eight-year contract. I don't want to sign an eight-year contract. Because for both sides, eight years is a long time. And a lot happens in eight years. I mean, a lot happens in eight fucking months. We're talking about eight years. That's that's a long time. Sebastian Ajo is 26 years old. You're telling me if he signs a five-year contract and he turns 31, he wouldn't get a good contract on the open market? Yeah. And you're telling me he couldn't get 9.75 a year over a five-year contract with the Carolina Hurricanes? If they weren't going to give him that, I guarantee you another team would have in the NHL. He might love Carolina. I get it. But if I'm a team, if I'm a player, I don't want to sign an eight-year contract. And I think if you're a player that does want to sign an eight-year contract, I think you're a little desperate. And I think you're a little worried about your performance long-term. And that would concern me as a team as well. There's a lot of therapists, a lot of a lot of digging deep there. But I just don't think they're necessary. And I don't think they're beneficial to organization or player. That's why I hear all the time, well, we got to sign this guy eight years. Or there's precedent. This guy signed an eight-year contract. Okay, that doesn't mean anything to me. Precedent is the precedent that is the precedent that you set. Just because somebody did something ten years ago, does that mean you have to do it? No. No. Oh well, this president did it that way. You should do it that. No. No. I don't think anytime somebody does something, they do exactly as the person that did it before them. If you buy a business from somebody, that person who bought the business before you, it might have been a successful business. You might have paid good money for the business. But are you going to do things exactly the same as the person before you? No, because it's your business. You got to put your own, your own flair. You have to put your own spin on your work. And that, that's the same thing here. These players like McKinnon and McDavid and now Ajo, Makar, all in eight-year contracts. To me, those are, that, those are not precedent. They are not 
okay, this is what everybody has to do now. They are wrongdoings. They are incorrect. It's the wrong way to go about it. I don't view it as, oh, this is what I have to do now because other people do it. I look at it as going, I look at what my peers have done incorrectly, and I'm going to do, I'm going to juxtapose that by doing it correctly. NHL, NHL players have, have to do something. They need to look outside of their realm and really think about their career. Look at basketball, look at baseball, soccer, football, and see the amount of money that these players are making per year and how much more it is than you. It's not all about the money, but when you're done playing, you kind of want to make some money, right? And if you could sign an eight-year deal, and yes, Aho's making $78 million. It's great money. Don't get me wrong. But if he signed five years time, times 9.75, and then in five years when he's 31, he signs a five-year deal and he gets 13 a year, that sounds like a better deal, two better deals. And there's 10 years of your career. You're, you are optimizing. You are making the, the most out of your years. And by by Aho doing this, just for instance, he's not being selfish. He's being smart. You can try to win and make money, good money, at the same time. But if I'm an NHL player, that's how I'm approaching this. Look at all these money, and it would make me fucking crazy to see what these other athletes are making opposed to me. Like Connor McDavid. And, Jill and and McKinnon and these McCarr, they're all better at their sport than Jalen Brown is at his sport. Sorry, Celtics Nation. Sorry, Shea Babes. But you know it. They're all better than Jalen Brown is at his sport. Yet they make $12 million a year. McCarr makes nine and a half. Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown makes $60 million a year. $60 million. These players are winning. They're, they're winning awards. Jalen Brown loves a turnover like Bob Ross loves a fucking paintbrush. And that's what he that's his that's his major. That's what he's great at. And yet he makes that much more money than these great NHLers. So if you could sign five years times 9.75. 31 years old, go five years times 13 because the salary cap's going to go up. It might be more than 13. I'm just pontificating here. It's going to be more than 9.75. If you play to your level, Ajo never dips. He's one of the most consistent players in the league. He's always going to be good defensively. If you keep up your same production, if you continue to be reliable, you are going to have value in the league and you will get a five-year contract at 31. Or if it isn't five years, you sign thir three years times $14 million. That isn't a bad payday either. Now, I'm not trying to be an accountant here. I'm not trying to be a mathematician. I'm just thinking logically. It would anger me to see all these players making so much money in other sports, and you get criticized for wanting to make fourteen. And the criticism isn't warranted because, again... Fans get upset because there's a salary cap and, oh, you can only take this much because you're trying to win. 
Okay, whatever. Leaf ends primarily. But you you got to do what's best for you. And I think there's a there's a way to do it smart and to do it unselfish. If I if oh good for him for getting eight years and seventy eight million dollars. I'm happy for him. It's a lot of money. It's generational wealth. It's awesome. Don't get me wrong. But if you can go five and five and make more, <laughs> I would do that if I could. I just think players need to look at this a little differently. And if I'm an organization, five years... I'm going to get the best five years that I can get from a player. Why eight years? And eight years is such a long time. If you sign a player to an eight-year deal, you are competitive when you sign them to that deal. Unless you're, say, Columbus, and you sign Zach Wierenski because you need to keep somebody in-house. But for the most part, the recent signings, uh, McKinnon, McDavid, Makar, Aho, these star, superstar type players are given these eight-year contracts on teams that believe that they can win the Stanley Cup, right? Which I have no problem with because you need really good players to win, period. Uh, Florida with Matthew Kachuk. See, so you do that because you were in a window to win. But you know damn well that when you sign that player to an eight-year contract that you are not going to be competitive for all those eight years. The odds of you being a Pittsburgh from 05, 06 until 2018, give or take that window because they had a lot of first-round exits where they really weren't that competitive, but I'm going to give Crosby the benefit of the doubt. And Detroit from oof, late 80s until mid-2000s. The odds of you signing long-term contracts with players and having that team competitive for the entirety of that contract are slim to fucking none. Because things change. People age. Shit Happens, pandemics, salary caps, who knows, injuries. Why not? It's sound eight, eight years, five years. It's not that big of a difference. Those three years are pivotal. If Zach Prize and Ryan Suter weren't signed to those long, crazy-ass contracts, Minnesota would not have 14-plus million dollars in dead cap money on their books this year. They wouldn't have to pinch pennies to re-sign Phil Augustuson or to work around things or if they were smart enough to not give Marc-Andre Fleury two fucking years, then they wouldn't be in this predicament. But all these decisions are so important. In particular, your job is harder when you're in a salary cap sport. Because in baseball, in basketball to a certain extent, you can pay your way out of a problem. You can pay your way out of a problem by just sending him somewhere else. 
We'll buy out this person. We'll go Bobby Bonilla style like the Mets. We'll pay him a million bucks until 2052. And you forget about it. In hockey, these decisions are so pertinent. They're so important. And you have to maximize your ability in making smart decisions as an organization and as a player. I think that's the evolution we need to see from both. Signing an eight-year contract is great in theory, but in practice, I don't think it's a smart one. I really don't because I just, I don't like eight years. I also think it's better for players to sign five-year contracts because you get more into free agency. You get more excitement. You get more boom. Trade deadlines, there's more activity, which will enhance the product, enhance sponsorships, enhance viewership, which in tune enhances profit, which will help you down the road. But Sebastian Ajo, congratulations. I just disagree with the way you've handled this. You're a young player. You're really productive. You're incredibly talented. And you play in a really good team that still has, the, still has the chance to win a Stanley Cup. No doubt about it. But you could have done this without signing an eight-year contract and made more money, likely down the road, by signing a five-year deal. Carolina wants to keep pieces in Carolina. I get that. They're a small market. But I wouldn't have a problem playing in Carolina. Looks like a really fun place to play. The fans are involved. They're loud. They're louder than most Canadian fan bases. If you go to a game in Canada, you know where. They're louder than than their, than their fans. Storm surge, all that stuff. Pig mascot, great. Now, you see Ajo gets a deal done. In the instant, you know, Twitter, what, what happens? Do you go on Twitter? Who's trending? But Bill Nylander, because it's somehow this contract is connected to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Of course, it would have to. It would have to connect somehow. You have to find a connection. Well, is this contract connected to William Nylander? And does it have any, does it have any bearing on it? Well, the answer to that question is, in my opinion, no. And I'll tell you why. Because William Elander is not Sebastian Ajo. Toronto Maple Leafs aren't the Carolina Hurricanes. It's, it's, a, whole, it's a completely different circumstance. William Nylander is a second-generation NHL player. His father, Michael Nylander, played in the NHL a long time. Wasn't the easiest to deal with when he was signing contracts, which I have no problem with because make your money. And that's just the way he was. Williams seems to have taken in a few of the same traits of his old man. Where his contract negotiations aren't that easy. He will play hard ball with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And that's just the way it is. 
William Nylander is a winger. Sebastian Ajo is a center. William Nylander is a goal scorer. Sebastian Ajo is a 200-foot player. They play different positions. They do different things on the ice. So why would they be connected? The one argument I can make that would tie it together is I think Sebastian Ajo is a better player than William Nylander. Just plain and simple. As I said, they're very different. William Nylander is a 40-goal scorer. Scored 40 last year. Had 87 points, over a point per game. He was great. I really I like William Nylander. Sebastian Ajo is a year younger. That helps. He only had 67 points in 75 games when he had 36 goals. It's pretty close, almost a 40-goal score. Scored uh, 38 in his career, so he's he's right around the cusp. He's the 35-goal scorer. That's what Sebastian Ajo is. But he does more for the team when it comes to 200 feet than William Nylander does. And Sebastian Ajo's teams have been more competitive and have been more successful than William Nylander's team in their tenure in the National Hockey League. Not not an opinion. Go look it up. Conference final appearances, things of that nature. So we'll move on. So Ajo is a better player than William Nylander, in my opinion. He does different things. William Nylander gets more points. We go through this. Timo Meyer, 8.8 million. That would be more of the comparison to me because he actually plays the same position, unlike Sebastian Ajo. David Pasternak is not a close proximity because Pasternak is a much better player than William Nylander. The reason I don't think it has any bearing and it doesn't, there's no connection and it doesn't matter, is because William Nylander has a number he wants. And that's the number he wants. And I also think there's a zero, I'm going to repeat this, a 0% chance William Nylander signs an eight-year contract. And I also think there's a 0% chance that the Maple Leafs should want to sign William Nylander to an eight-year contract. I do not want that guy on a, on an even six-year deal. I want him short-term he, he, he's a guy that needs motivation, that needs that chip on the shoulder. If he signed long-term, I think he could get fat and happy. Proverbially fat and happy. I'm not saying he's going to get chunky. But he might get a little too casual. He might be, he knows the money's coming in. Checks are clearing no matter what. And I don't really like that with him. I want him to be motivated to play well. To think about the next contract. And I fully believe that William Nylander wants $10 million. You might have the opinion that that's pie in the sky, that it's crazy to give William Nylander $10 million. I wouldn't want to pay him $10 million either. But I think that's what he wants. And I think that's why there is no deal as of now, July 28th. He remains, he's got one year left on his deal. And nothing's happened because he wants a certain number. And I don't think he wants to sign long-term with a number that starts with an 8 
or nine in it. And with the salary cap going up, I don't blame them. Because if it goes up next summer, if it goes up a couple years from now, more money will be available for players. Not like the NBA or the NFL or Saudi Arabian soccer, but there'll be more money. And as I said, when you're playing, why not make as much money as you possibly can? That's business 101. It's a stalemate. If I'm if I'm the Maple Leafs and he wants $10 million and you are unwilling to pay him $10 million because you really can't with the way your salary cap system works, then don't pay him the $10 million and if you really want him for this coming season, let him play it out. Let him play it out and if he walks, he walks. And the reason it's okay for him to walk if that's the ultimate decision is because you're trying to win a Stanley Cup this year. You are a team that could win a Stanley Cup. The The East is weak, weaker than it has been in past years. A lot of turnover. And you're in a position to win. So you're not going to trade one of your best players if you have a chance to win the Cup. Simple as that. So you let him sit there. And maybe he'll cave because he wants to play in Toronto that bad. If you're William Nylander and you want $10 plus million and Toronto's unwilling to give it to you, I think it's a similar situation. You play out the year. You know they're not going to trade you. You're going to be on a competitive team with a lot of good talent around you. Hopefully you have as good a season or better as you did in the past one. You score another 40 goals. You're a multi-time 40-goal scorer. You're over a point per game, and you play really well in the playoffs like you have the past number of years. And when you hit free agency, there are teams out there that really covet your services. And maybe you have to leave Toronto to make the kind of money that you want to make. But newsflash, Bill, there are good cities in the NHL Outside of Toronto. Your dad played for half the league. He could probably tell you good ones to go live in. And teams you want to avoid. But I don't think there's a connection. Because I think there's a number that both sides were willing to go at. And currently, neither side is willing to budge on their position. If this was the Kyle Dubas regime, William Nylander would already be signed to a contract over $10 million. Brad Treleving is in, and I think he's setting a new precedent for the Toronto Maple Police where he doesn't give in. He gave Jonathan Huberto a huge contract the second he got to Calgary. He didn't think about it. It's something he had to do to keep him there. I don't think Huberto would have gotten $10.5 million in the open market. I know a lot of people disagreed with me at the time. I talked to a lot of people about it. That was just my opinion because I don't think you want to pay a winger that much money for a guy that's done nothing in the postseason and is in a, has been a proverbial loser his entire career. No offense. Best player in Florida Panther history that couldn't win a fucking round. That was his legacy. That's their best player. 
but he gave Huberto that contract because the narrative was nobody wants to be in Calgary anymore. Huberto, uh, Goodrow left, Kachuk asked out, and they needed to shine it up. Lipstick on a pig, whatever kind of expression you want to use. He did it. Well, he's coming into a situation where it's been widely reported that Austin Matthews, his contract's pretty much done. He's going to be a Toronto Maple Leaf, but they're waiting to announce it because they want to, I don't think they want to announce how much money he's going to make before Nylander signs. And if I'm William Nylander, I am not signing either until I know how much Matthews is making. Because if he's taking $14.5 million a year, not taking the the, the quote-unquote hometown discount, stupid term, then why would I take a hometown discount, quote-unquote, to stay in Toronto? I've already done that once. I did it already. I took my kick in the shins. It's now my turn to make some real dough here. So Ajo's deal can get done. Timo Meyer's deal can get done. Anything can happen around us. Maybe Eric Carlson gets traded. Maybe there's a move. There's another signing. Who knows? Things are going to happen, but I don't think it changes it one bit. And I don't think there's connection. I don't think there's... I don't even think William Nylander cared about Sebastian Ajo's deal. Because he knows what he's willing to play for. And the Maple Leafs know what they're willing to pay him to play for them. It's a different number. So until the sides come to an agreement, or one of them wilts, he will remain with one year left on his contract, playing it out with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I repeat, is that such a bad thing for either side? Not necessarily. Because if the Maple Leafs are confident enough that he loves Toronto so much that he'll re-sign eventually, there's no rush. If William Nylander is so confident he can have a great season and the Maple Leafs will give in because they see how good of a player he is in the playoffs, what's the rush? Or if he walks and you bring in a stud defenseman that you finally have a number one defenseman after not having one for 20 years... That might not be a bad situation either. When one door closes, another opens. Two things can be true. The Toronto Maple Leafs will be in a position to compete for the Stanley Cup this year like they have been for the last three or four. Past three or four, they have not gotten anywhere fucking close to winning. We'll see if that changes this year. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. These, this bickering over the contracts and what he should make and what he will make. Oh, God. Can he be so selfish and take $10 million a year? It'd be crazy if Matthews doesn't sign for eight years. Oh, really? Okay, wait till he doesn't sign for eight years and then come talk to me. I'm putting a lot of 0% just... Definitive statements that I'm going to continue. 0% chance William Nylander, 8 years. 0% chance Austin Matthews, 8 years. How do you like me now? Zero. Why? Because they're business people and their agents are smart. 
Not that Ajo's agent isn't smart, but probably didn't go to Harvard. Probably went to Yale or Brown or a lower tier, lower tier Ivy League school. Because if you got your client to sign an eight-year deal when the salary cap's going up, you're not really doing your job all that well. So, you know, good luck. Congrats, Aho. Does this make, does this mean anything for the Toronto Maple Leafs? No, it does not. But thanks. Other Toronto Maple Leafs news, they placed goaltender Matt Murray on long-term IR on Wednesday to start the 2023-2024 season. To me, this screams he's going to be paid to sit at home, fail a physical, and never play again, at least for this year. They didn't want to trade him. They didn't want to trade him and give up an asset to get rid of him. Also, he has a <laughs> he has a no move, so he can decide where he wants to go. Which my that is just no move contracts. So Matt Mur they had to do something with him, and you put him in LTIR. He gets his full check, and you move on. Ilya Samsonov was signed this week. Joseph Wall still under contract. So you got two goalies totaling four million bucks. Those are your goaltenders to start the year, and Matt Murray is just, it's gone. It's the best case scenario for the team. It's what they had to do. They had to get underneath the salary cap. And now they have 10 plus million dollars in long-term IR dead cap space on their books. Now, there's nothing wrong with having these contracts on LTR. There really isn't. It happens every year and teams use it to help them win. Tampa did it, and they were labeled as cheaters for doing this with Kucherov. It was not cheating. It was an injury, and they kept him on LTIR longer than maybe they should have. If you can get away with it, why wouldn't you do it? When you were a kid, did you do anything that was wrong? Did you ever knock over a mailbox? Did you ever knock over a... No, I'm not going to talk about that. you ever uh, have a beer underage? I had a few. You do stuff that's you probably shouldn't do, but you do it because it's fun because you're not supposed to do it. Doing stuff you're supposed to do isn't all that fun. So you do it. That is what Toronto is doing. That's what Tampa did. That's what Vegas did last year at Mark Stone. You get players, you put them on injured reserve to help your team win. Any person that labels this as cheating or it's a sham or this isn't right – Get off your fucking high horse because you're no better than the rest. Your team has done it, whether you know it or not. There's an injury on there. Oh, he's really injured. This guy's got a real bad knee injury. Okay, he did for two months. He was on there for two and a half. What is what? What, what happened the other half of the month? Stub his toe? Hangnail? Something happened? Got hurt at water aerobics with Tanya? I don't know. This isn't cheating, and I see this online, and it, it's just stupid. It's so stupid. And I have to defend Toronto Maple Leafs, which I don't want to do because they don't deserve my sympathy or my defending because their fan base has more stupidity than smart people. And the people I'm connected with are actually 
smart people. Most of my family anyway. Leafs fans are smart people. Some not, but some do. But this isn't cheating. It's not, it's not, it's just, it's the way it works. Hard salary cap, a way to get around it. This is what you do. You're, you're, you'd be happy if your team did it if you had a player you could not stand looking at anymore and you didn't have to see him play and you could use his, use his money to bring, in on a, bring on another player. That, it's simple as that. Leaf fans hate seeing the face of Matt Murray because he got hurt in warm-up twice, he couldn't play in the playoffs, and he was no good for them. Period. End of story. Is he really injured? No. Other than maybe his mental health, he was dressed in the playoffs. He was a backup goalie. He didn't play, but he was dressed. So did he get injured from then until now? Maybe, but no, he didn't. He's just an LTIR because he they don't want him anymore. Stefan Robida could still play, but he went on Robida Island because the Leafs didn't want him anymore. Kucherov went on LTIR because he was injured at the time, hip surgery, but he sat on it for another month and change. Mark Stone, back surgery, did have the surgery, but again, he only got activated come playoff time because they could. Vegas, let's get Ivan Barbashev, let's fit him in, so then let's keep Mark Stone off the books a little while longer so we can compete. Oh yeah, so we can win a Stanley Cup. And those tears of people that were complaining about this are gone as Vegas drinks from Lord Stanley. They don't give a shit about your tears or what you think about it. Oh, my God. All this complaining. Twitter's a bad space, people. I will tell you that. It is. It's... It's just, people need to get over themselves. But we'll see. Who knows? Well, I do know that this is the way of the world. So we're seeing this other NHL news, uh, arbitration filings for Boston and Jeremy Swayman, team 2 million, player 4.8 million, oof, $2.8 million difference there. I think Swayman's going to win that. It's just, I could see him getting this Samsonov number in around there, 3.55. They're offered. They want two million because they can't afford to pay him anything. They're in such cap hell right now. So that'll be a difficult uh, exchange in Boston. That can get really get really stitchy too. But that that's this weekend. That's on Sunday. That's the arbitration hearing. Why he was not given, why he wasn't signed by another team, Jeremy Swayman. 
he wasn't given an offer sheet is beyond me. I it just it's stupid to me that he was not given that, but it's teams are afraid to do it. Teams feel they got to live by this code. Boston may have to cha- trade Jeremy Swayman because they can't afford him. But teams out there that need goaltending that say, oh, we never have a goalie, why you wouldn't go out there and try to sign him to an offer sheet is beyond me. It's just, it's fear, it's lazy. But again, you go through another offseason where teams don't do it. You don't want to improve your team. And then I have no sympathy for teams that bitch about their situation when you could have improved your team, but you chose not to because you were too afraid. Finally, NHL news, Logan Cooley, finalist for the Hobie Baker last year, has decided to turn pro after all. In May, he announced that he would be returning to the University of Minnesota, be playing his sophomore year there, but ultimately talking with the Coyotes, working things out. He has decided to turn pro and will play with the Arizona Coyotes next year and start his entry-level contract. A couple things. I don't think he wanted to go to Arizona because he doesn't know where the team is going. They have no stability, and it's it's a really bad organization. All true. (laughs) All, All true. Plus, they play in an amusement park for an arena. But if you turn pro, you start the clock. He will make $900,000 because he was a first-round pick and he was the top three pick. So he's going to make $925,000 next year, plus get a good signing bonus. So he'll get that. And you start the clock to becoming restricted free agent after three years. You start playing hockey. You have some success. Maybe you're out of Arizona quicker than you think he could be traded by the end of his entry-level contract as Arizona is so crazy but this is the decision I mean going he was nominated for the Hobie Baker and yeah he didn't win it but Matthew Nyes has turned pro Adam Fantilli was just drafted third overall he's going to be playing in the National Hockey League next year he's not going back to college so you've done what you can do you made it to the national championship game, you lost in overtime. It's a tough sting. It hurts, certainly. But he had a really good, a really good college career. He was, other than Bedard, it would hard, he'd be real close as the, the second best player at the World Junior Tournament in December. He had such an impact. For the U.S., his first couple games, he he was slow, but he got better and better as the tournament went on. That game against Canada, he was dialed in. So he gets to go play in the NHL. It's another interesting name added. You think about rookies this year. I think Fantilli is going to be playing in the National Hockey League. Obviously, Bedard will be playing in the NHL. Leo Carlson still up in the air. But you're going to have Matthew Nyes, who's technically in his first year. Logan Cooley. He'll be playing in his first year. You saw like Owen Power was nominated. Matty Beneers was nominated for the Calder Trophy. Those guys were all 19 and not 18. They played one year of college, then went to the National Hockey League. I think it helps. 
I think it helps their development. I think they play better. I mean, we saw Owen Power last year. He looked like a guy that was a 10-year veteran in the NHL. He's that damn good. I think he should have won the Calder Trophy, but that's just me. I think Logan Cooley will have an immediate impact in the NHL. It might be subdued because he's playing in Arizona and nobody watches that team or cares about them. But I think he'll be a good NHL player right away. And I think he'll have a good rookie year. Also, the Ottawa Senators, after nearly a month of this rumor percolating, the Ottawa Senators signed Vladimir Tarasenko to a one-year, $5 million contract. Vlad Tarasenko is not my favorite player. I've been very open and honest about that. I think his work ethic is minimal. I think his production has declined. I think his health is poor. So all those things I just said are not positives that I can put on. I don't think he was very good for the Rangers when he was traded there. I just view him as a guy that was once very good and is on the decline. Can he still score goals? I mean, that's the best thing he can do. But total, last year, he scored 18 goals. That's a 20-goal score for a $5 million player? Nope. 2019-20, he played 10 games. 2020-21, he played 24. 75, that was the best in a while. And 2021-2022. And he played 60 last year. If he's healthy, sure. But the Ottawa Senators, you have Drake Batherson on the wing. You have Claude Giroux on the wing. I love Tim Stutzla, but you have Kachuk on the wing. They're building a good team in Ottawa, but if you get to spend $5 million, I would prefer to spend that $5 million on a defenseman. And defensemen are hard to come by, certainly. But I still, I still look at a guy like Brett Pesci who's sitting there in Carolina. I, it's as if they want to get rid of him but they don't know how to get rid of him because they still want to try to acquire Eric Carlson and they want to see if they can get some things done. He'd be great in Ottawa because he's great defensively. Heart and soul guys, but played in a lot of playoff games. And Ottawa could use some of that experience. I would rather have Brett Pesci signed at $5 million. Five times five because I'm not going more than five years as we uh, discussed earlier. But if I could get Pesci five years, $25 million, or Tarasenko one year, $5 million, I know where I'm going. He adds another guy that can score. I get that. But that wasn't their problem last year. The Ottawa Senators could score with anybody. They were a high-profile offense. Claude Giroux had a great year after having a disastrous final one in Philly. Craig Batherson's a great winger. Shane Pinto's a talented young kid. Timmy Stutzla is, is a... Fringe superstar. I thought he'd have a huge year. He did. I think he'll have another huge one because I think the kid's just a, a winner. Brady Kachuk's a competitive, as competitive as he gets in the National Hockey League. Jacob Chikrin, to me, is still a good trade. 
I like that for the Sens. Corpusalo, again, I like the number. If he can stay healthy, I think he's as good as any of these fringe goaltenders, as the Swaymans, as the Samsonovs. I think they're all a risk. And I think they're all around 4 to $5 million worth of risk. The amount of goaltenders in the NHL that are safe locks to be good are few and far between. That's why you get a great one, you hold on to them like grim death. But you take a chance on Corpus Allo. If I was a team, I would have taken a chance on Swayman because he's probably better than what you have right now, or he, at least he's different than what you have right now. Like Columbus, they have no cap space. They have Merzlikens. I, to me, Swayman's is is not as big a risk. I think he's as good a goaltender or better than Merzlikens is currently. Swayman's played in playoff games in Boston. He's played, yeah, he's played a good defensive team in front of him, but he still had to play the games, and he still played relatively well in those positions. But the Sens signed Tarasenko. We'll see what he can do in Ottawa. He'll be motivated to play well on a one-year deal. That's one good thing. Let's pivot to fighting. It's a big fight weekend. Errol Spence Jr., Terrence Crawford in Vegas this weekend. One of the biggest boxing matches in recent memory will take place this weekend. Can't wait to see that go down. But also we got UFC 291 in Salt Lake City, Utah. And we have a Bellator card in Japan late Saturday night. So this is all on Saturday. A crazy day for, for fighting, for combat. If you like violence, this is the day for you. And UFC 291 is headlined by Dustin the Diamond Poirier against Justin the Highlight Gaethje. The second fight for these two men. They fought back a number of years ago in 2019. Dustin Poirier won by TKO in the fourth round, but it was a bloodbath. And it was just, it was a battle of all battles. Heading into this weekend, Dustin Poirier is a minus 152 favorite against Gaethje, who's at plus 124. Poirier last fought in November against Michael Chandler, beating him via rear naked choke in the third round. Gaethje fought in March, beating Rafael Faziev in a really entertaining physical bout that was a split decision. I thought he won the fight. And now both these guys, who have been interim champions but not undisputed champions in their career, are still searching for that lightweight title. And this win would put them in line to be in a discussion for that in 2024. But they are also fighting for the BMF title. Baddest motherfucker if you're not familiar with it. Jorge Masvidal and Nate Diaz fought for this title in 2018. Masvidal won the fight, and after this fight is done, he'll be handing out the belt to, he'll put the belt around the waist 
of the winner. Gaethje fights like he's going to kill you. He just steps forward. He's going to attack, and he will take big shots, and he will deliver big shots to you. He's got one of the best leg kicks in the game, and it's his biggest weapon. He just he kills your legs, and he kills your spirit. But Poirier's been in so many big fights. I mean, he's fought in Habib Nurmagomedov. He's fought Charles Oliveira. He's He's beaten Conor McGregor twice. He's beaten Michael Chandler. He's beaten Max Holloway. They're both legends, and they're still at the top of their game. There are fights you look at Dustin Poirier and you think he's going to lose the fight. I mean, if he, I recently rewatched that Gaethje fight, and I thought Gaethje was leading the fight two rounds to one going into the fourth. But Poirier got some really good shots in. He went for the kill, and the fight was over. He's not necessarily known for being great on the ground, but he can beat you. If, if you give him your back, he will take it and he will find a way to win the fight. I think this is a, such a great main event. It's going to be physical. It's going to be crazy. Gaethje never uses his wrestling. He should in this fight. He likely won't. He, he shot one takedown in his fight against Fiziev, and it was in the last four seconds, and he got credit for one. And he was so happy about it after the fight, just to kind of make a mockery of the whole thing. I'm, yes, if, I was a, if I'm betting on this, Poirier is the favorite, and I would be betting on Dustin Poirier. Because, yes, is the second fight. Gaethje will make adjustments. But I think Dustin just finds a way to win these wars. He's been in them. He's in a he was in that brutal fight with Max Holloway, where Max is as tough as they come, and they they went at it. They fought each other tough, and Dustin found a way to win that. But he beat he's beaten McGregor twice. He knocked out McGregor. He, he's beaten Dan Hooker. He lost to Habib, but it was a close fight. Beat Max Holloway. Beat Eddie Alvarez. Beat Anthony Pettis. Beat the legend Jim Miller. He's been in the ring with the best of the best, and he's gotten the better. He's gotten the best of them more times than not. He's twenty nine and seven in his MMA career. But in this main event, I think it. I think it's going to be fun, but I'm going to say Poirier. I'm going to say Poirier via TKO in the third round. The co-main event. It's also a huge fight. Former light heavyweight champion of the world, Jan Blahovich, will be fighting Alex Pereira, the former middleweight champion of the world. Jan lost his title to now basically Alex's coach. Glover Teixeira in 2021. And Pereira lost his last fight in April to Israel Adesanya. And this is his first fight at 205 pounds. He was such a huge man at 185. The weight cut was so brutal for him that this should be an easier situation. But you're going to a weight class with a guy 
that has been doing this for a long time in Jan Belovic. He's beaten the best of the best. He's known for his wrestling, which he's great at his wrestling, but he's also got Polish power. He's knocked out Alexander Rakic. He has beaten Israel Adesanya. He knocked out Dominic Reyes. He knocked out Corey Anderson. He knocked out Luke Rockhold to win the title. He's welcomed guys to the division. At three times in his career, people have moved up to light heavyweight and they fought Jan Bohovic. Luke Rockhold was one. You had Israel Adesanya was another. He won those fights. He's 3-0 in those respective fights. So Alex does not have an easy opponent because Jan has Polish power, but he also can get you on the ground and beat you there. Alex is not a, a grappler. He is not a wrestler. He is a striker personified. And if you want to s- stand there and square off with him, it's not a smart decision because the guy might have the best punch in the UFC right now. Jan's 40. He knows this really is his last kick at the can if he wants to get back in the title uh, the title opportunity. He had a draw in December with Magomed Ankalaev that was really controversial. I thought he lost the fight, but it was close. They ended up ruling it a draw. He's a minus 115 favorite going into this. You can get Pereira at minus 105, so it's very close. To me, the winner of this fight, it wouldn't surprise me if they were the number one contender for the light, well, it's a vacant light heavyweight title right now. When Yuri Prohaska is ready to return from injury, the winner of this fight could very well be fighting him for the belt. Maybe they'll be waiting in the wings if Ankalaev fights Prohaska. But these men are going to be in that discussion with a win. Belhovich, you might say he's 40. He shouldn't be in the discussion for the title. But if you beat Alex Pereira, a former middleweight champion, and one of the most dangerous men in the UFC right now, you definitely should be. Because you still got it. You are still a damn good fighter. And Glover Teixeira won the belt at 42, so anything can happen. In particular, at light heavyweight, because that division is just so fucking crazy, and you never know what's going to happen. You can get Pereira at minus 105. It's Again, he's not the favorite in the fight. I'm going to pick Pereira to win. Logic tells you Jan will win this fight because he has more ways to beat Alex, which is true. He does. And we've never seen Alex fight at 205. Jan's been doing it forever. He knows what it's like. But I'm still going to say Pereira will knock out Jan Blachowicz. I'm going to say it's a second-round knockout. And he vaults himself into discussion for a title opportunity at 205 pounds. Third on the card, you have Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fighting Michelle Pereira. Stephen Wonderboy has been around the fight game for a long time. He's now 40 years old. He still looks like a very young man. But he's 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 fun. He still is a prominent name. He's ranked number seven in the welterweight division. Pereira is 13. He last fought in December when he beat Kevin Holland in the fourth round uh, TKO. 
He was on a skid before then. He had lost to Gilbert Burns. He had lost to Bilal Muhammad. But Wonderboy can still fight. Pereira is 11 years younger than him. He's coming off a win over Santiago Ponzinibbio. He's won as Pereira's actually won three, four, five in a row. So he's 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 on a run here with some with some really good fights, and he's finding some momentum. Currently, Wonder Boy's the minus one sixty favorite. You can get plus money, plus one thirty on Michelle Pereira. I like Wonder Boy. I, I in December he looked vintage. He looked good. His striking was solid. Pereira is not going to try to take him to the ground and have a grappling match. And that's really where Wonderboy struggles. That's the biggest weakness in his MMA game. But I'm going to go with Wonderboy Thompson to win this fight. Fourth in the card, you have two, you know, a couple crazies. Bobby Green fighting Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson had once won 12 UFC fights in a row. He was scheduled to fight Habib Nurmagomedov two or three times, but they're all scrapped because of injuries or things happening. Tony's had legal problems. He had he's had DUIs. He's had a checkered past. But he he had to fight Justin Gaethje. He was kind of a, a, a number one contender fight. He lost that, and since that fight, he has not been the same. He got really really rocked in that fight. And since then, it's been downhill. Lost to Gaethje in 2020. Then lost to Charles Oliveira. Another really good fighter. Lost to Benil Dariush. No shame in that. Lost to Michael Chandler via a brutal knockout. And then lost to Nate Diaz in September of 2022. So now he gets Bobby Green. I mean, this is not an opponent you usually see Tony Ferguson fight. He's normally at the top of the card. But he's no longer a ranked fighter. Tony's 39. Hasn't won a fight since 2019. One, two, three, four, five losses in a row. The Diaz fight was weird because he wasn't supposed to fight Diaz. It got rearranged the day before. The Chandler fight, he won the first round. He got caught with a brutal kick 17 seconds into the second round. Bobby Green, he's he's Bobby Green. He's crazy. He's fought everybody. He's been around the game a long, long time. Just like Tony. Fought Jared Gordon in April. No contest due to a, a headbutt. He lost to Drew Dober. He's lost to Islam Mahachev. He normally fights two to three times a year. He's, he's fought Al Iaquinta. He lost to Faziev. He fought Dustin Poirier back in the day. Did lose that fight, but he did fight Dustin Poirier. So this is an interesting fight because both guys are tough as hell. Both guys refuse to back down to say that they're on the back nine of their career. Bobby Green's a minus 420 favorite. He's a massive favorite going into this fight. Tony Ferguson is at plus 310. Tony hasn't won a fight in a very long time. But I'm betting on him to win one this weekend. Bobby Green is tough. He is no slouch. He's been in so much cage time, just like Tony Ferguson. Two 
legends of the sport. I'm going with Tony Ferguson to pull off the upset. I got Tony winning this fight. And the last fight on the main card is Kevin Holland, another one of these BMF guys against Michael Chiesa. Fun style matchup where Kevin Holland is a striker. He is a boxer. And he'll go about finding ways to hit you with really big shots. And he he's, he likes to talk in the cage. He's a fun guy. Chiesa is more of a wrestler. Chiesa is technical. He finds ways to win fights. So both guys will be looking for different things. Chiesa has not fought since 2021. He had a serious back injury. He lost to Sean Brady in that fight. And he's looking to, to rebound and kind of solidify himself. He's 13th or 14th in the rankings. So Kevin Holland's looking to get that welterweight ranking as well. Kevin Holland's fun. He's fun to watch in the cage. He's always got that personality cooking. Kies, again, Kies hasn't fought in such a long time. And he had to deal with a back injury that could have ended his career. It almost did end his career. He's talked about it, that it was, it was that serious. I like both guys. They're both good interviews. They're both interesting fighters. Kevin Holland is a minus 148 favorite, which is a tad surprising to me because then Kiesa is, is, a, is the wrestler is interesting. Because I haven't seen Kiesa in so long, I'm going to go with Kevin Holland. He's always active. He's always looking for fights. I'm going to go with Kevin Holland to win this. Also on the card, you got Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis is on the card. Who's always, he's a, you can get him at plus 184. He's another guy that's been on a long skid fighting at altitude. May not, may not be easy for him against Marcos Rosero de Lima, who's at minus 230. Trevin Giles against Gabriel Bonfim. Bonfim's brother Ishmael lost a few weeks ago. Both, both kids are really good, and he's a massive favorite for, for good reason. He's a really good fighter. Middle, uh, middleweight contender Roman Kopolov is fighting Claudio Ribeiro. He's at minus 215. But it's a damn good card. It's a damn good card. Some of the specials you can also get. Um, All five main card, main uh, all five name fights to start round three. You can get that at plus sixteen hundred, which I wouldn't actually mind. Um, so UFC two ninety one should be great this this weekend. Um, I again, I think this is one of the better pay per views of the year. It's gonna be, I think it's gonna be really competitive. A lot of really good fights. A lot of a lot of People you just like to see fight, basically. We also got a boxing match in Vegas. Crawford Spence. Two of the best in the sport over the last decade. They had two different promotions, so you never thought we were going to get this fight, but we got it. Errol Spence Jr. enters the fight at plus 120. Terrence Crawford's minus 150. I like Crawford to win the fight. I think he's a little bit, a little more surgical. 
He seems to be bigger when he gets in there for fight nights. He just seems to be to put on weight easier. But these two fighting for the 147-pound belt. I, I'm going to pick Darren, Terrence Crawford. Both guys are really talented. I'm happy this fight's happening. I have to stream this at the same time. But good stuff. Other UFC fights announced. September 23rd card. Rafael Viziev, who lost to Gaethje in March. He is back. He's in a main event against Matias Gamrot. Two surging guys in the lightweight division. Gamrot had recently beaten Jalen Turner. Was in a really fun fight with Benny Dariush that could have went either way. He's looking to rise the rankings. Fazia is looking to come back after a knockout loss to, uh, to a decision loss to Justin Gaethje. Love this main event. Fireworks. Gamerot's such a fun fighter to watch because of his, his style is unpredictable. Faziev is tough as hell. He will step forward. Love it. Also on that card, number 15-ranked featherweight Dan Iggy fighting number 13th-ranked featherweight Bryce Mitchell. We haven't seen Bryce Mitchell fight in a, quite a while since his since his loss. He pondered retirement, but he's kind of he's going to come back. Dan Iggy got a big win a couple weeks ago against Nate Landair, so he's trying to rise the ranks at featherweight. Bryce Mitchell is trying to do the same. We'll see how Bryce comes back after a loss. Bryce is kind of a submission specialist. He credits credits himself on getting people to the ground. We'll see, but that's if that's a co-main, that's a great co-main if they even improve that event. Uh, October 14th, Edson Barbosa, who came off a big knockout win over Billy Q, who will fight next week, Bill and Carantino. He gets in with Sadiq Youssef, who returns after multiple years with a, a bad, another bad back injury where he had to have fusion surgery. But Edson Barbosa has kind of been the gatekeeper for a long time. He gets a huge win. We'll see what happens there. And on August 26th, 26th UFC Singapore, Alex Kakaris against uh, Giga Ch uh, Chirasi, who has been gone from the UFC for quite a while, and he returns. So some fun fights there as well. So the UFC has been pumping out really good cards lately. They've been pr uh, promoting some really good fights. We're still waiting to hear on what's going to happen for the Sydney card in September. Is Israel Adesanya going to be fighting on that card? We don't know. Sean Strickland said he wanted to go fight there, but the UFC doesn't want it. He said that on social media. Izzy wants to headline it, but again, are they going to make him sit and wait for Drickus Duplessis whenever he is healthy? We'll wait and see on that. Quickly to the NFL. Justin Herbert, five years, $262.5 million. Huge contract for him. We'll wait and see on Joe Burrow, who hurt his calf yesterday at practice, went down, doesn't sound like it's going to be a major injury, unlike Jalen Ramsey, who will miss the start of the season with a knee injury. Might have been a meniscus tear. Luckily, it's not a torn ACL because that would have ended his season, but he'll miss likely the first, at least September, to start the year. Trayvon Diggs got five years, $100 million in Dallas, so he's locked up. Zach Martin remains absent from training camp. He gets fined $50,000 a day that he's not there. He wants a new deal. We'll see. DeMar Hamlin, great story. Full go at Bill's camp. Got a standing ovation. He's there. He wants to make the team. He wants to play football. I love it. I just want him to be healthy. Um, Trey Hendrickson, great pass rusher for the Bengals. Signed a one-year extension through 2025. 
and Frank Reich named number one overall pick Bryce Young the week one starting quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. It might not sound like huge news, but it's surprising to me because you usually don't see coaches name the rookie quarterback the number one guy this early. You do have a veteran behind him there in Andy Dalton. But to me, Bryce Young's an obvious starter. He was great in college. He went number one overall. He's your guy. I have no problem with it. I was just surprised that Frank Wright went about it this quickly before you get a preseason game. But I suppose he also doesn't have to answer any more questions about it, which would be easier for his life moving forward. The weekend is here. Hope you guys all have a great weekend. Enjoy the fights. Enjoy some baseball action if you can. Trade deadline on the way. We'll recap it all on Monday's edition of To the Point. We've got a trade deadline coming up on Tuesday as well. So that'll it'll be it'll be busy next week as well, uh, as well as we head into the month of August, if you can believe it. But enjoy your weekend. Again, happy birthday, 23rd birthday to my sister. Um, I love you. And uh, we'll talk to you guys on Monday. This has been To the Point.